Hello, humans. I had a really cute and fun intro recorded for this episode, and when I went to hit publish last week, it just it didn't feel right. It felt like I was trying to cover up or make light of the situation uh, in my life, and uh, this whole program is about showing up as you are, and so I had to do the same. So here I am. Uh, trigger warning, we talk about mental illness in this episode, so if that bothers you, this isn't the one for you. And um, yeah, I wanted to just briefly touch on the the high profile suicides, which whenever somebody well-known takes their life, we talk about suicide and mental illness for a week or two, maybe a month. But for those of us who have mental illness, who have suicidal ideation or who have attempted suicide in the past, it doesn't go away. That's something that we live with our whole lives and have to learn to live with and live well with. And um, I just want to say to anyone who is part of the tribe of still alive, I like to call it the tribe of still alive, which means that, you know, you have a mind that tricks you into thinking that you don't want to be here sometimes. I would really love it if you got visible because this disease, it lives in darkness. It grows in isolation but you're not alone. And there are a lot of people going through the same thing. I wrote a piece called How I Managed Not to Kill Myself Yesterday on hellohumans.co. I wrote it about a year ago and you know I ended up calling the suicide hotline. And so whether or not you're currently in the thick of it or if you've struggled with it in the past, get visible. If you're doing well right now, let it be known so you can be a beacon to somebody who might not have anyone else they feel comfortable reaching out to. And if you're going through it right now, be visible. Call your loved ones. If you're so deep in it that you can't remember who loves you because that happens, call the suicide hotline. There's a text version now. That number is 1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They have online chat. There's a text version now. Everything you need to know is in the description of the podcast. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, I'm going through it right now. I feel banged up and I don't want to show up and I'm just going to show up. And it might mean that we go slower than we want to. Just show up and do your best and keep showing up and keep doing your best and we'll get through it. If you feel like you've just been flushed down life's toilet, hey, me too. We can hold hands in the sewer. I promise it's temporary. I know firsthand it's temporary. You are not disposable. And I don't need to know you to know that. So just keep showing up. And uh, all right, let's get on to the episode. And let's add a bit of music to, you know, liven it up just a little bit. So this program is all about truth and what it means to be human. You know, the whole picture, not just the surface level bullshit. And I found a truth teller. Her name is Mandy Statmiller. She's written for a ton of publications, currently writing for The Daily Beast. But I discovered her through her new book, Unwifeable, which is what I meant to talk about. The only problem is I was super depressed when I showed up. And it's the first interview I've ever done really in the woods. And, uh, you know, if I was going to show up a mess in front of anyone, I'm glad it's Mandy. She's no stranger to mental illness or depression. And uh, it really became what the program's all about, which is one human 
talking to another human and telling them how they get through it. Uh, you may remember on the last episode, I joked about going off my psych meds, which I actually did. And I am uh, just wanted to report that, yeah, it didn't work out the way I'd hoped. And if you plan to try that, you know, maybe consult your doctor and do what they say. Because, yeah, going uh, cold turkey didn't work so great. Anyway, happily back on them, starting to kick in. Yay. And uh, cool. I hope you enjoy this episode with our guest, Mandy Statmiller. Mandy, hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. I know you have a busy day. Oh, well, you know, I'm just trying to sell some books, I guess. And (laughs) so it's so hard to, it's so hard to promote things in a landscape when everyone has interesting things going on. So it sounds like you're doing everything you can, though. I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. I want to interview you, though. You sound like you have a really interesting story. And I don't know a lot about you. And we were talking on the way up. So I'm sure you talk about it in every, you know, so you don't need me to interview. I hope they at least get bits and pieces. I don't want them to get too sick of me. Right, right. Um, So for people who don't know you, who are you? You I am a Oh, no, I'm a writer. And I've done a lot of different writing jobs over the years, including some not in journalism. So I worked when I was younger as a speechwriter for Northwestern University, where I also went to school and uh, did fundraising for them. But then I've worked at a lot of newspapers over the years, Washington Post, Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel, Des Moines Register, uh, New York Post for the longest from 2005 to 2012. And then I was an editor at Jane Pratt's website, Exo Jane, from 2012 to 2015. And then now I'm writing for The Daily Beast. And most importantly, I have a new book that's coming out, except it's not coming out. It's already out. It's been out for two days now. And it's called Unwifeable. And I wrote about coming to terms with some of my own negative self-perceptions and history of not treating myself well. And it's done in a kind of dark, humored kind of way. If people have gallows humor, they will definitely enjoy it. So yeah, that's the story. And you can get it at unwifeablebook.com, although I clearly haven't sold anyone on it, on it yet. I bought just it. Just by that. Oh, you did? Oh, I thanks. did. I couldn't figure out the net galley oh, login. Oh, I'm so sorry. But luckily it came out it just came before. It came out. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. And this is, I'm in a weird place right now where yeah. um, normally I Virgo out and I read and watch every single thing you would have done. No, I get it. We did this so last minute. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we were planning on doing this in New York, but you ended up coming to LA, which is really close to me. So yeah. flying blind a little bit, but I think that's cool. I that's think fine. We can figure it out as we go. Yeah. Well, anything that um, you feel like stands out to you, like a man scraping on the. <laughs> yeah. I didn't anticipate <laughs> furniture movers upstairs. Oh, no. <laughs> um, that's we'll, okay. We'll survive. We'll, we'll survive. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that. I, if if I were to interview myself, I would want to know some of the, you would ask me, what do people normally not ask me? And I said that I like to geek out about reporting because I think it's really fun 
to look at how everyone can be a journalist towards their own lives. And it was something that I used in writing this book. And I really encourage other people to write their own memoirs. And I don't want them to have to reinvent the wheel. So I love sharing knowledge. I mean, my my book is sharing a lot of the secrets that I feel like I didn't know and learn the hard way about life and love and psychology and self-esteem and self-worth and journalism and media as well, which affects everyone. I mean, everyone is in journalism and media today if they're on Twitter, if they're on Facebook. Yeah. So part of, I think, the book, what started the book, was what led up to it was making a bunch of mistakes and yes. creating a ton of messes, yes. which is, that's what we're about. I mean, that's my huge story. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through what led to actually needing to look inward. I want to get to the oh, yeah. insight and stuff. but I Oh, lo- no, no, of course. Yeah. Well, I think I just got progressively sadder and I realized that instead of being a funny person, I was more a person being laughed at because I was constantly offering myself up as some kind of sacrifice to the art of story. It's like I would do anything for a story. And I think that in realizing that I was allowed to take a minute and look into myself for difficult questions of what actually makes me happy and what is something that I want to be doing versus what is something that will get me approval and attention and validation. And that's when things started to change. I mean, in terms of just sobriety, alcohol and drugs, I got sober in uh, June 2010 In terms of sexual sobriety, I would say that I think that's a more difficult area to put. I mean, I I could like pinpoint the exact date when I came up with a sexual bottom line, which for me is what works, which is, you know, not putting myself in a dangerous situation or one that doesn't feel good. And in terms of realizing that I could do a relationship differently, I would say that that only really started in 2015 because the happy ending of the book is that, uh, yeah, the pitch is, you know, do everything uh, wrong and you still meet Mr. Mr. Right. And it's Mr. Right for me. Most people don't like being married to comics. You know, for me, that provides a lot of sanity and stability and happiness. So, yeah, I think that I met someone who checked me in terms of keeping me honest and real. And whenever I would kind of slip into another archetype or costume that I put on pretending to be someone else so that I didn't have to feel the vulnerability that comes with potentially getting hurt or looking stupid or being rejected, my partner, my husband now was good about calling me out. And That's a really big thing for me because I think that to avoid getting hurt a lot of my life, I would try to just pretend to be someone else. And that's a dangerous situation to be in because you get farther and farther away from what 
authentic happiness is. Yeah. The best boss I ever had would just call me out. Yeah. And not in front of anybody, but he would just be very clear. Sam, you are not doing the job I want you to do. It, you have to step it up or you're going to go. Mm-hmm. And it's so much better, to, especially in love and relationships, to have somebody that will tell you along the way rather than when it's too late. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, something that Pat said to me before I left for L.A. was, you know, the thing I like about us sexually is that the sex keeps getting better. And that's unusual. A lot of times it, and I've thought about that a lot. And I realized that one of the reasons is because we communicate a lot. (laughs) We call each other out when things aren't working. I mean, obviously not just in, in sex, but in fighting, in resorting to old standbys that people fall into and that I especially fall into, which is blaming and defensiveness and just trying to serve up a litany of the other person's past wrongs as some kind of evidence like you are in a courtroom drama to show that they're wrong and are you a good scorekeeper do you have a good memory yeah oh man I have a terrible memory Oh, really? Yeah, so I need That's some- good in relationships because, I mean, that's – it's really – that's no way to live. I think that's the opposite of open-hearted living we were talking about. I liked your Brene Brown interview, and I, I think that when you are constantly living in the past, you don't have a chance to look in the present as to what's happening. And I think that that's what I've done a lot of my life is take myself – do whatever I could to take myself out of my present reality so that I didn't have to deal with any of the anxiety or potential self-criticism that comes from just being in the moment. So, and I I just think I dissociated a lot of things throughout my life whenever things were painful or weird or traumatic or dysfunctional. Well, in the really tough times, it's survival, right? It's like, if I, if I, remember this or dwell on this, it's going to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really tough, especially when you haven't fully forgiven someone and then you screw up the natural instinct, right. Is to then be like, well, it's like be defensive and to kind of bring up something that they did. And I'm guilty of that too. And it's really, I mean, I remember a fight I got in with my girlfriend where I said, you know, it was something that really hurt me. And I just made a promise to her and to myself, like, we're going to get through this and I'm never going to punish you for this again. Cause that's a big part of my relationship story was that, you know, I really hate being called out and on my shit. Oh, you do left to my own device. But you like the yeah. boss who did it, but you don't like the, I mean, it's been a practice. So by the time <laughs> I had that boss, I was, I was pretty sober Yeah, and I've really come to accept positive criticism. I've had really great constructive criticism on the podcast. I've had not constructive criticism when it comes to my writing. Yeah. But now I try to hear the love in it. And we're all human. We all screw up. And but you mentioned something about how you're running away from that anxiety and fear and self-critic inside you. I think that's a huge reason why a lot of people check out whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, video games, whatever it is, is that when you're with yourself, especially when you're sober, if there's nothing changing your mood, 
it really sucks in the beginning because you have to feel all the feelings that you've been avoiding. Right. And it's a big decision to make to basically say, okay, I'm going to feel everything because it comes on at once. I've heard people say, oh, my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking. It's like, bullshit. Like when you're drinking or using, when you're using it to get away, it's really painful to start feeling it all again. And so you write really transparently about what happened, especially when you're writing about, like you said, for anything to get a response. What was, was there a single point where you said, this shit has got to change or we really decided I don't have it figured out? Well, yeah, I think it was the weekend that I got sober in 2010. I had been sober for about eight days, and then I went to a going-away party for someone who worked at Page Six, and I had a young man chatting me up, and he was cute and funny, and that's just, like, crack to me if someone I can riff with, and I just, it made me feel like, I don't know, I was just getting, he, he did everything that you're supposed to do if you're gaming a woman, you know, doing the whole pickup artist thing. And he said, you seem really cool. You're different than a lot of girls. You know, they have these sex club parties. And I bet I've never found a girl cool enough to take. I bet you would be down. It was like the curtain was just drawn back and you see the Wizard of Oz, you know, that he didn't like me authentically and that I was a means to check off a certain kind of debaucherous experience because I seemed like the kind of girl that you take to a sex club party. And then he said, you know, they actually have them tonight. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, all right, well, get me a drink, you little shit, because I'm not going to go to a fucking orgy sober. And that was something that I then, everyone I had reached out to initially about sobriety, I then followed up and said, listen, I've decided that, you know, I just have these legendary experiences and they're just so much. I just had so much fun. And me and this guy were talking about going on a sexual heart of darkness journey together. And I don't even know what that I means. I just, I don't either. <laughs> I guess hot wax. I mean, I, okay. I, 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 I don't know. And he uh, then kind of seemingly blew me off. I mean, of, of course, like that's how screwed up my thinking was to think that, <laughs> what, that's where you're going to meet the one, some guy who, you know, picks you up at a a bar and takes you to an orgy within like hours of meeting him. But he was kind of in similar industries and in similar circles and was very quick and just seemed like I, I thought he liked and accepted me for who I, I think I was always looking for someone who didn't expect me to change. And whenever I got some glimpse of that, unless the person was, really so high status and I was so dissociated from who I was 
like when I did a dating column for the New York Post, I think I was very, very taken and swept away with dating like a rich, fancy, high society guy. And I just thought, well, this is an opportunity to wipe the slate clean. But back to the sex club boy dude, I just really kind of wanted to recreate that experience. And I met some guy and did drugs with him and then almost had sex with him and just realized I wasn't attracted to him at all. In fact, everything about the situation felt ugly and dangerous and I didn't like how he was it didn't like there's healthy kink and then there's unhealthy kink yeah and like when he pulled my hair it was like my neck snapped back like it didn't it felt less playful and more sinister and when I kind of sobered up I said I don't want to maybe we can just be friends and he said I don't think so And he was someone who's very much in my circle. And I just felt so completely worthless and sad. I just didn't think that I could bring myself to go to work. I was working at the Post then uh, to, to just get it up for life. You know, I didn't see a way. And so I called one of the comics who I had talked to initially about sobriety and who I had sent my justification email saying I know sobriety is for some people but I just I have these crazy adventures and I gotta keep doing them and I called him and uh sounded very sad and he was a lot less gentle with me than he was the first time and he said you know you can keep calling me up every couple of weeks or you can change your life yeah And for some reason, the way that he said that, it really landed. And for the first time, I felt like I could, I realized that the way that I had dealt with sobriety before was by just seeing what happened and where the night took me. And if there was something where I just clearly had to party, where the signs were all there, there was a cute guy, whatever that that was, you know, I would go with the momentum of the universe and whatnot. And I realized I could be the one calling the shots instead of continuously letting life happen to me. And I could make a decision to no matter what, not drink or do drugs. And that was, that's something that I had never really considered before just taking that responsibility on. And when you do that, everything really changes because it starts showing you that you can do that to other things in your life. Um, You just, when life stops happening to you and you start deciding, oh, I can create a thing. I can create a podcast. I can write a book. I can, you know, everything shifts. Yeah, until you're at that point to where it's like, okay, no matter what, like I'm done with this, there's always an opportunity, right? There's oh, al- always. Like I would get like six days and then there'd be a huge rave that I can't possibly miss. Right. You know, and finally, when you hit that point, it's like that desperate, desperate point where you say, this is going to kill me, you know, and it could be with anything, but especially, yeah. you know, with drugs and alcohol, it's apparent. And as, a, as an addict myself, it's hard because 
the drugs and the alcohol, when you use them excessively, are so everybody knows you're fucking up, except for your using buddies. But then once you're sober and you're left with yourself, there's so many other addictions to hop to that are kind of more socially acceptable, whether it's sex or love or gambling or whatever it is. Street art for me was a big and not that there's anything wrong with street art, but it was like I was getting high on that. Mm -hmm. And so we can skip forward a bit. When you started from square one, like what was the progression of the journey of learning how to be a regular human, you know, how to function in the world or be a good partner, which I learned the hard way in sobriety. I, I screwed up in a lot of ways sober, but it did end up leading to the person I am today, which I, you know, I'm human and I make, I have tons of mistakes and I absolutely have areas I need to grow in, but I do consider myself, wow, I've really, I've really become a good partner at some point. I don't think it just happened. I, you know, screwed up enough times that I really wanted it to happen. But what, what were your first kind of goals after, after getting sober? What, when you're rebuilding your life, what were the big moments that come as milestones, things that you'd want to tell your loved ones if they're ever curious about what's on the other side? Well, I think that the most difficult thing to do when you're trying to date in sobriety and when you're trying to find a partner is not just like you said, just not falling into another addiction or another distraction. And I think that you have to almost build in things to keep you sane. So for me, I, I won't go outside for, you know, days on end because I'm working on something. I mean, workaholism is something that's always been my, my thing, you know, and it's revered, right? Like being a workaholic is almost, (laughs) it's like a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think when you're doing what you love, I mean, for me, writing, writing unwifeable was something that was sometimes I didn't always love it, but I then would have some kind of a breakthrough or self-discovery that then I was able to use that as almost like a new lens of glasses to see the world, you know, realizing that I was seeking just validation and approval and little crumbs of love through sex or that I had grown up in a very chaotic dysfunctional home and that to me home felt like chaos and dysfunction and that I was subconsciously seeking to recreate recreate some of that and that I never knew how to talk in terms of emotions that I would always just tell a million details about something instead of just saying I feel happy or I feel sad or I feel really afraid I I never talked in emotions. And I I think that by learning to build in some of those safeguards that I know keep me sane, I think that has led me to continuously improve a little bit. I mean, I think that's another big thing. Someone once told me uh, when I was thinking about getting divorced, I was married once before, I was just exploring a lot of things in my life. And There was a woman I worked with who said, you don't have to just change things. You don't have to just 
change careers, just do a little bit of all the things you're interested, even if it's like five minutes a day. And to me, that was revolutionary because when you have a certain kind of personality type, neurotic, perfectionist, codependent, you tend to just think, you know, it's it's all drama of the gifted child stuff where you would rather just not study for the test so you could say that, uh, well, I didn't really try, you know, and I think that when you actually put your heart into something, your heart has a chance of being broken and you have a chance of being uh, vulnerable. And so a lot of times we won't risk and we won't do a book and we'll just talk for 75 years about the book we're working on or the <laughs> film we're working on. And, you know, the... um your mom's book is obviously one of my favorites, but then another one that I really like is The War of Art, uh, which is really about, you know, just making yourself do it. But it's really difficult to figure out how to make yourself just do a little every day when you tend to have an addict personality because you want to just be able to wake up and say, and now I'm a painter and everyone is celebrating me. And what were you going to say? Oh, it's so it's so sexy to just jump in. And yeah. so I remember. Uh, and that's what we're sold in Hollywood yeah. is that, you know, the kid stays in the picture type stories where just you're plucked, you're chosen. Yeah. Yeah. I know a ton of people who feel like they just need to get to that point to where they can do it full time and that'll mm -hmm. break them. And. It's not true. A, everything is way slower than you want it to be, especially when you're trying to be a creative. And there's no there's no moment where you're on Oprah and everything changes. It's like even the Oprah channel has a bump, but it's not the discovered process. It was years before then right, that it right, happened. Right. And it happened so slowly. So there's so many people that just feel like, well, one day, well, one day, well, one day. And I even started rock climbing two years ago and I bought a four wheel drive truck like within a month because mm -hmm. I was a rock climber now. Because you wanted that identity. Yeah. You wanted, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, peace in identities and in tribes and in knowing this is where I fit in and this is what I'm about. And then you don't have to, then you just feel like, okay, I can check that off. I don't, that, that's taken care of. And then now I can, I mean, they're really huge questions of, personal identity and then when you find someone to tell that anecdote to that you bought the pickup truck to go with the rock climbing classes and they laugh in recognition and you feel this like epiphany of connection and that you're not alone in the universe to me that's my favorite part of the human experience is calling out and examining um, some of the hypocrisies and frailties and just hilarious things we do to try to figure out who we are and our place in the world. And I mean, that's, that's, uh, th that's how I feel whenever I discover great art, whenever I read, you know, a book or when I, I don't know if you've ever seen enlightened on HBO, but when I watched that, I just was like weeping and just felt so much happier that other people felt the same way that I did in terms of, just alienation and being unlikable, but still likable and just not fitting into 
what a lot of times is kind of just mass produced in terms of this is what a happy bride looks like. She's on the cover of Weddings Magazine. <laughs> this is what a man looks like. He rock climbs and he drives this truck. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't rock climb anymore. I still like my truck, though. But Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's the real beauty of being open and transparent, even kind of exposing some of your flaws or mistakes is that you find fellow travelers who make the same mistakes. And it's really nice to find your tribe and to be like, I have such bad depression right now. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the first time I've ever done a podcast like full. I've had ups and downs kind of naturally, but mm -hmm. I'm like in a full blown sinkhole that feels like it's never going to end. Mm -hmm. I know from experience that it's temporary. Just keep going. Don't make any big decisions while, while you're on it. But well, what, what usually gets you out of it? Well, I know for a fact that somebody told me you can't think your way out of bad thinking. You have to act your way out of bad thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's true. The catch-22 is that it's really hard to take the right action when you feel like that. So I know what's going to get me out of it is doing everything that has worked in the past, which is you know being grateful and conscious, and whether that's prayer or meditation, which are things that I like, exercise is huge. Mm -hmm. you know, I haven't been exercising. I've been a workaholic. Mm -hmm. I can't spare a minute or else Hello Humans is going to be a failure. And the truth is that if I don't exercise, I'm at risk. I'm at risk for depression or suicidal thoughts or whatever. And then eating like garbage, right? You get depressed and you start doing all the opposite things of what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. And you think you can just think your way out of it. So what's going to get out of what, what's going to get me out of it, I imagine, is uh, being patient and then starting to take the next right action, which... It sounds like there's a lot of paralyzing judgment that happens about some of the things that you do that you know aren't helpful. Like, I mean, sometimes when sometimes when I'm I fell back into smoking uh, cigarettes in the course of doing this, uh, just the book promotion and just everything around it. And I realized that I can just hate myself while I'm doing it or I can accept that's where I am <laughs> right now rather than adding. Because I, it just for me, sometimes I catastrophize and then I just pile on myself. Yeah, so and sometimes too. like, I mean, for me, the most helpful philosophy is that goofy Louise Hay philosophy of just, you know, really, really just drown yourself in this unconditional love and acceptance. Because when you are treating yourself with this very conditional kind of acceptance, because you're going through the checklist of all the things you know you're not doing, I don't know, sometimes it just like lubricates the passage to then getting eventually to the to the healthy place. I don't know if that's totally stupid advice, but I just when you were talking about those things, I was like, oh God, you're just like beating yourself up so hardcore. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm, I'm hearing that. Yeah. And when, and, and when, when I beat myself up, I just, I can't do anything. So in case it didn't translate into the audio version, I had put a lot of thought into how to get out of that sinkhole and uh, be nice to myself. <laughs> was it anywhere on the radar? So this is why it's good to, you know, talk to other people about what's going on. This is a quick break. Just to let you know, we're audience funded. 
and I'm not going to give you the hard sell. If you want to be an audience member who helps fund the program, you can go to patreon.com slash hellohuman. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash hellohuman. Pitch in a dollar a month or five dollars a month or I won't stop you from pitching in fifty dollars a month. And if you're strapped for cash, you can write us a review on iTunes. That helps. Follow us on social media, you know, so when these uh, stars look at who we are, they don't think we're some schmucks. They, they realize that we're legit big timers with a social media following. Anyway, um, that's it. Okay, back to the show. Oh, and it's all written down in the podcast description wherever you found this. You know, and uh, I sometimes just try to remember to throw a little party that I figured out my Gmail password or, you know, I mean, sometimes it becomes this ridiculous thing where you are having to reparent and treat yourself like a child and giving yourself that adoration and nurturing and care, which I don't think is narcissism as long as you're not out in the world just being like, hey, everybody, I logged into Gmail. Yay! You know, I mean, because people would probably give you a hard time. But when you are by yourself or talking to a friend or talking to a therapist or whoever, it can be fun to really give it up for yourself that, you know, that was a hard thing for me to do. That was a hard angle for me to figure out. That was a difficult situation for me to get out of and I didn't I didn't freak out I didn't beat myself up I didn't spiral the fuck out you know that is cause for celebration which we never give ourselves and as a result of that sometimes it can be just where you are you're not even yourself it's like you're a shadow you're a ghost of yourself because you are so far degraded and weakened from all of these self-hating thoughts, you know, all of these. I I wrote about my process to someone in an interview that I did, and I was talking about how I'm so crazy that if I just think I'm going to get a coffee, it then becomes, oh, I should quit coffee. Is caffeine addictive? Are the beans uh, fair-sourced? You know, are it, it just... It's the tendency to just overthink and use your brain as a weapon against yourself. Yeah. And sometimes just being conscious of that and calling that out can just slay the the dragon and it can slay the, the demon. Yeah. Uh, being harsh on myself is my default. Mm-hmm. And as you say it, it's going, oh, of course. It's like a shame spiral. Of yeah. Of course. Of course. Okay. So you mentioned <laughs> process. And I'm intrigued. Oh, yeah. What's the pro- what is the process you're talking about? Oh yeah, I think I already said it. The coffee thing about just you know realizing that you are your own worst enemy when you're doing that, and that you know you just all that goofy new age self love shit. I love the goofy new age. Self-love yeah, shit. I mean it's really really helpful to. Sometimes just asking yourself, what would make me feel good? What would make me feel a little bit less alone? And I know for I know for me, I hadn't done like free writing in years and I did it recently and I had such a better day because of it. Sometimes those old 
classics can just be really helpful. You just have such sad eyes. I feel so bad. I wish I, I feel like I'm not saying anything at all that's like helpful no. or cheering you up or no, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on my own little journey. But okay. I do resonate with the wow, I've been really hard on myself. Yeah, I feel, well, I just I, yeah. I know that personality type and people never think about that. No. They yeah. just think like if I well, if I can do this, if I can eat the wheatgrass and go to the gym three times, then I'll love myself. Yeah. And you forget that, like, you can't do all that shit if you don't start with the self-love, you know? Uh, and we're all going to be dead, you know? So, we like, enjoy enjoy that Cheeto, you know? I, I hate it when people try to encourage me in unhealthy habits. So I'm not doing that, but I'm just saying that sometimes when something is halfway digested through your esophagus and you're, you know, past the point of even hypothetical bulimia, it's like, it's done, you know? So just kind of just really love and accept like everything about yourself because otherwise it's, impossible to go on in a in a way where you feel like you're living your best life because you are constantly having to fight past these really tough brutal psychological demons who are just kicking you in the cunt and you know gouging your fucking eyes with telling you what a worthless piece of shit you are and that's just to, you know, get to the mailbox to deliver, you know, your rent check or whatever. And that's that's a tough way to live, you know? Yeah. And and just saying like, and you know what? I love and accept that that's how I was, that I was beating myself up. Like you have to be like really silly about it sometimes in order to uh, snap out of the just beating yourself up. I mean, the only thing that I find that works is just talking to a friend or even better than that, doing something kind for a friend. I have a friend who has a little kid and she has a lot of drama in her life that she's having to contend with. And I was hanging out with her one day recently and I just like cleaned her place. I vacuumed her place. I changed the baby. I, you know, offered... I bought her groceries and I felt like such a worthwhile human being because I had done something for this person that I love and that I care about. And I mean, that's kind of transactional, you know, like and and, and kind of like, aren't I awesome? <laughs> like, yeah. just for doing that. But I mean, that's like such an old standby of all of the programs is that if you like, you know, if you want to die, if you hate your life, if you feel sorry for yourself, go, you know, sweep someone's porch. And it has a way of really taking you out of yourself and out of your own narrative of self-pity and, and victimhood, which that's not a slam. That's just like, you know, every addict has that. Oh, um, there's some of that going on for sure. Yeah. In me, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my dad, like some of the biggest fights I've had with him are I just, you know, I, I feel like he's got a tendency to be a bit of a misery addict, you know. I mean, he's a blind combat veteran with a head injury who survived two AK-47 rounds in Vietnam. So, you know, tough fucking life, right? But it has a way of spreading over to everything where you almost notice that there's a... I mean, Eckhart Tolle talks about it as being the... Um, 
what does he call it? It's like the mind body darkness or something. I forget what it, but he has a term for it, but where you just don't even realize that you are seeking out things that provide that calming confirmation and certainty that life sucks and you don't even, it almost hurts you to see, you know, joy and happiness and because you're so, oh, pain body. He calls it the pain body where it just has this weird ability to attract like experiences. And sometimes you don't even realize that it's just taking over the narrative, you know? So yeah. Yeah. I, Every, I, everything that I say, it ends in, so, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. No, I do, I do need to walk away from here and be more gentle with myself because I wouldn't, I wouldn't think the things that uh, I get hard on myself about, about my son, I wouldn't be that hard on him or a friend. It's just I feel very comfortable abusing myself. And, and, and also protect yourself from that abuse. I mean, you mentioned like uh, critiques that you've gotten and stuff. Sometimes like just we're not, I mean, one of the questions I asked Elizabeth Gilbert when she came to speak years ago was how do you deal with criticism of your work? Because I read, I had never looked at her Amazon reviews and it was this competition. It was like probably about, you know, 20 individuals just fighting over who had the better insult? Oh, you made it to page two? I didn't even last that long. Oh, what a, nar- you know, and she just seemed calm as can be. And she said, oh, I, I just don't, I don't read them. I read, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll read reviews in, in newspapers, but I don't, yeah, I, I just don't read those. And it was so revolutionary to me, the idea of just not, not looking at some of that stuff, especially just if you're not in the best place. And sometimes you just have to, you know, armor up with the old Al-Anon principle of go where it's warm or don't go to the hardware store for milk. You know, (laughs) don't, you, you know, anything that is in the realm of critique or criticism, that's going to be tough to take if you are already, you know, below below the ice cap and just trying to get up to the surface. Yeah. You reminded me of something too, which is all of my pain right now is all about me. Me, 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 Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said about the doing something kind. I I need to go find some act of service, multiple acts of service to do, especially for loved ones. Because you're saying that and it's going, I just feel like slapping my head. Duh. Duh. Like, so, yeah, no, it's um, and it's really obnoxious. I mean, I sometimes like anytime anyone is just really gung ho about anything, it's just like hard for me to deal. And anytime anyone speaks just all in aphorisms and cliches. So m- my saying that is sometimes like the idea of going to like a meeting or wherever and then finding someone to talk to and figure out what porch you're going to sweep or do the service commitment and all those things. It just makes me want to hurl, you know, because I, I, I don't want to listen to the person who's just like, well, this grateful alcoholic is blah, blah, <laughs> blah. And just, I mean, and God bless that person, but just, you know, it's just my own sometimes too much perkiness when you, it, it's like having a hangover and, you know, just blaring lights 
where you just are so resentful. And so sometimes it's just, um, you know, like a smaller, easier step where it's like, oh, you know, that teacher who really told me that one thing and writing them the letter that you never wrote them about how the thing that they said really, you know, made the difference in not dropping out of AP English or the, you know, sometimes actively telling someone something that you may have casually expressed, but really just writing it out as a kind of like love letter and appreciation letter, that has a pretty transformative gratitude effect because you know that they're going to read it. You know, you're not just like, going through the motion in your head of saying, yeah, I got to practice attitude, uh, gratitude. Like for me, all those things you said about meditation and prayer, I can't do that when I'm really low. You know, I mean, I, I that's the trap I've been in. Yeah. They, they the help. Fuck wants to meditate and pray. I mean, yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, a lot of times I'll just say things over and over again as a kind of cleansing, you know, I'll just say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Be with me, God. Be with me, God. Or I'll do. I mean, I have I feel like every new age pantheist option in the world, I've dabbled or, or tried. So there's like, a, there's a whole thing called Ho'oponopono where you say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. And you say it over and over again, and then it's supposed to have these miraculous effects. I think I, I screwed up the order. Oh, I'm but bit, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Or I'll call, you know, the unity prayer line and just pray with one of the people. And I just heard about that. Yeah, it's very yeah. sweet. Yeah, yeah. It's a very nice thing to do when you just feel like you can't do something for anyone. I like a practical motion to feel like it was done so that it's not just words without action. Yeah. No, yeah. it's like, I know taking some time to meditate helps. I know exercising helps and eating helps, but I feel like I've been trying to swim in the deep end Yeah, before actually just wading in the shallow end. Yeah. And yeah, I need to show up at someone's house <laughs> and do their dishes or something. Someone yeah. who's like really behind. Cause that. Yeah. Someone with, I mean, I mean, and the thing is, is like, I, th I think sometimes people are wary about those kinds of offers. They're like, what the frick, you know? But when it's someone with a kid, yeah, they're like a lot less jaded. They're like, <laughs> oh my, really? Oh, thank you. You know, that can make the difference in just their entire attitude about life. And it can make you feel like I'm a really worthwhile human being. Also, sometimes for me, just, you know, binge watching something that makes me feel alive. Like watching, I remember when I watched uh, Goliath on Amazon it's Billy Bob Thornton, and he's just this worthless, alcoholic piece of shit. But he just has a great heart and goes up against a huge firm. And it's, I get a lot of life juice and will to live through really brilliant art like that. And sometimes feeding yourself with that and feeding your heart and your mind with it it can provide you something that you might not be getting from the outside world because, you know, sometimes we put so many expectations on other people's ability to soothe us and we want them to say this one specific thing and read a script and they can't. And then, and it just, and, you know, 
art has this wonderful healing effect where it does have the script and it does, it can provide you something that also takes you out, out of yourself, which can just be the most like crucial thing. I mean, I'm, I th- yeah, I think I've been way too in myself. In yeah. This, in this yeah. Project. It's wonderful to, yeah. it's wonderful to just watch a really just, you know, well done show where it shows you, I mean, enlightened is, is wonderful because it is getting on on HBO is wonderful. There are so many shows where you know that the person who did them is someone who's done a lot of work on themselves and has a lot of insight into just the actual realistic spectrum of humanity versus, you know, a kind of sitcom where it's just all false and you end up feeling, I mean, I can't watch a lot of comedy because it just makes me feel like I just want to kill myself. It's just so like empty and it's like, it's not funny, but everyone's laughing. It just feels like a funhouse mirror type thing. And ha- and watching something where people are calling out just. I don't like watching any art that's related to what I'm working on right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it feels like, oh, shoot, now I don't have permission to do that because they said it. You know, where it's like when I was sculpting and when I was looking at other sculptures, it'd be like, oh, well, geez, now I can't use scissors because he just did scissors. Hmm. It, but w- but that's like I shouldn't have written Unwifeable because there's been a million stories people have written that are memoirs and that are about their love lives and that are about addiction coming of age. Like, And I'll, and I'll tell you one of my favorite ways to go, and this is just, again, this is the comedic thing, but it always snaps me out of it, is I'll tell you first the thing that a friend said to me, and I I quoted in the book, but this was before I got sober, and I said to him, this is guy Wayne Fetterman, he's very funny, he's been in a million, million things, and he was listening to me just talk about how shitty things were, and I said... And I just got back in a regular pap smear and I just, you know, I'm worried now. I mean, like my health is now going in. And he said, well, that's exciting. (laughs) This could be it for you. And it made me laugh so fucking hard. And it just completely snapped me out of it. And so a friend of mine recently was saying just I've been doing, you know, comedy writing performing things for so long and just you know nothing something nothing has really hit and and I said I said yeah you should just face it everything's been done already and sometimes just having the bullshit called out can be a little bit of a relief because you realize okay I don't really I know that there is just a structure to everything and that using you know what I mean that you don't have to make yourself so crazy through through that yeah yeah when I look at other people's work it's like like when I'm face to face with you it's like you started a book you finished it that's the amazing part right I read it it's good but it doesn't to me it doesn't matter how well it does but then when it's me it's like oh it's got to do well Mm -hmm. well that was not a very glowing endorsement I read it. It's good. I read it. It's great. (laughs) No, it's okay. I mean, I'm genuinely curious. It's okay if you don't think it's good. I mean, I'm genuinely curious like what you think having having read it. I liked it. It was really, I mean, you're an open book. 
I feel like, especially when it comes to your sexuality and the lows, I, I, I loved how, uh, this is the wrong word, but graphic it was in a way where there's no implying that, oh, well, yeah, you know the drill. It was like really everything that happened to a point where it was really believable. Like mm-hmm. that's what happened that night. Mm-hmm. And I did like it. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry that uh no, it's okay. You're hearing me speak through the No, 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 I know. Depression. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I'll tell you that the feeling like something has to be great thing, you know, and that it has to like do well and all all of those types of things. I I think that that is just it's fun to remember that all of that is just a trick because I don't know if you've ever hung out with someone when they just like, you know, on top of the world, got an Oscar or just whatever the case may be, you know, the next day it's, what have you done for me lately? It's, you know, if you don't have the kind of core ability to get, I mean, I quoted in my book something that Taylor Negron said to me about, you know, he said, you need to get excited about a flower, you know, and I was so into just the drama and the chaos of my life with uh, men and the back and forth verbal fireworks and all that stuff. And he just kind of made me see that it's possible to apply your personality to something that goes antithetical to, uh, that is uh, me knowing I need to get an Uber. Okay, can I ask you one last question? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how to turn off my alarm, though. The hell? I'll just turn off the phone. Sorry about that. It's yeah, okay. tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, shutting down. Okay, shutting down. Okay, so generally we end it this way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If you could talk to your younger self or talk to somebody who's going through what you were going through when you were young, what is the one piece of advice you'd want them to hear that's really helped you? To not care what other people think because you're not even going to remember who those people are years later and the things that you concerned about, but just instead to actively create and to do whatever you need to do in order to get to a point where you stop living your life to fit someone else's idea of what you should be or who you should be thanks for coming oh yeah thanks for having me so much wow it feels really good to be back in the swing of things thank you for your patience in between episodes and you know what i really owe it to mandy's kind of simple just be a little kinder to yourself that made this possible because i took the time and i took really good care of myself and i feel like I can do this. So hopefully we'll be back in the weekly swing and uh, we're just going to do the best we can and keep showing up. For more of Mandy, check out her new book, Unwifeable. It's available everywhere. And for links of some of her stuff, including my favorite article, you can check out the show notes, aka the description of the podcast wherever you found us. This podcast is produced by Hello Humans and uh, made by yours truly. And um, our executive producer is Meg Schmidt. And uh, until next time, have a great day.